when you meet somebody who's at their deathbed, you know, most of the time it's about what they didn't do, right? It's, it's the regret that they talk about the most, right? And so when I experienced this, this, this thing in London, I said, I don't want to ever have regret again, like especially for big things. I want to just, just do it. And I'm lucky enough that I've had amazing experiences in my life, right? I've, I've had great degrees. I've just, I've, I'm lucky, you know? I mean, I came out of India, came to this country when I was 18 with two suitcases, $1,000 in my pocket, and I've been able to do it, right? And so part, a big part of that is luck. A big part of that is hard work. But I, th I think a lot of that has also just got to do with you taking the chances on things that you love doing and just going for it. And so I figured, hey, let's just keep doing that. It's going to work out fine. Guys, here we go, another trip around the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess, your host, endurance athlete, mindset coach, and someone who's in a deep soul contract with her co-host, Coach BJ. We are on a mission to create a better world, and a critical piece of that mission is to share meaningful conversations with the endurance sports world via this podcast. We see you guys, we see your support, and we are grateful that you are not only tuning in, but attuning yourselves to higher levels of living. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters, especially Abby and Renee, who just signed on as patrons. There is so much amazing content in that community, including recipes, extras, and mini interviews. Most recently, Beach and I have been streaming yoga classes through Zoom, and patrons are flowing with us for free. So get over to patreon.com forward slash yogi triathlete and know that you have our eternal gratitude. We are all on the same path and it's incredibly helpful to be reminded that we are never alone. When we trust the flow of life and stop pushing against it, we will see that it unfolds perfectly. I'm reading Diane Collins's book, Do You Quantum Think? And in it, she says that the perfection is why it all fits together. The perfect is it fitting all together. This recipe she describes has nothing to do with it being clean. It can surely be and most often is messy. But whatever it is, Beej and I believe that it's the perfection of the path that puts it all together. Arshad Ball had no plans of creating a plant-based nutrition product, not to mention a brand that continues to expand and remains one of the longest in the game. When he and his wife welcomed their son, Ion, into the world in 2004, they didn't realize at the time that he would be the one to inspire the creation that we now know as Amrita Foods. A brand whose mission it is to create better for you plant-based snacks that nourish the body and soul. We've known Arshad since 2016 when BJ took a job with Amrita after leaving his corporate job. And whether our guest today knows it or not, he served as an amazing catalyst for BJ in his transition and in his growth. We are so grateful to you, Arshad. We are so grateful to have you on the show with us today. It's the perfect time, and I know this entire conversation will just fit together perfectly as we move from a place of presence. So welcome, my friend. This has been a long time coming. Thank you. We're so glad to have you here, and we are finding you this afternoon in your brand new space, which you moved into kind of right before this all happened in our life, right? March of yeah. 2020? Yeah, it was right around, it was a couple of weeks before 
the lockdown happened. It was just you know, perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> and so some people would say, oh my gosh, you just expanded the space and moved into this you know, expansion and then this all hit. That's got to be terrible. But what you just told us before we hit record was that the timing couldn't be better. Yeah, you know, and, and I think one of these things that I've realized in life is that <laughs> the best plans are are typically, you know, written well in paper, but the execution of it is 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 flowing. You know, it is uh, keeps changing constantly. And so, having a space here to me, it's kind of like an artist space. Like this, it's a canvas, and I I've got some fixed things here that I need to do, but there's also a lot of openness to it. And I've purposely designed it that way so I can deal with uncertainties and deal with you know, changing situations. Definitely COVID has been a major impact, but as an essential company, we've been allowed to continue working, which has been really, you know, just from a mental perspective has been good. So I can keep working on my craft, but at the same time, you know, like I was telling you, the supply chain and other places have been broken. So I had to constantly adjust to what I wanted to do or how I wanted to, to execute. And it takes a little bit of trial and error and frustration some days, but, you know, we just sit down and we chalk every day as the best we can do. And, you know, and that's how we're learning here. And I know even back in 2016, I'm sure it went back even further that you, you wanted to open up a facility or you wanted a space that had, um, it was gluten-free and nut-free and, and vegan. And now it's here. This is it. So I did corporate for many years. And before that, um, I was lucky enough to be a consultant. So I've had varied careers in my past. And when I embarked on, on doing Amrita in 2012, I wanted to, to have this blend between being an entrepreneur, but also doing something that's giving back to society. And, at the, and the third part was doing something that is meaningful to me, like, like makes me feel like I'm providing value and service to the society. One of the ways I think I... I realized that I could provide the best value was to be a maker. And I think for, for the longest time in my life, I've been, you know, on the other side where I've been doing strategy and consulting and telling people what to do. And, you know, I've got my, <laughs> my degrees and all that. And, and I always walked in and I said, oh, yeah, I think based on data, you should do this. But I always felt like we lacked, what I lacked was execution. And so this endeavor here is about getting my hands dirty, executing, like, you know, getting, uh, coming out of this experience every single day, being really tired, physically tired. And I, and I love that feeling. And there's lots of things that I didn't get when I was in consulting or when I was working, you know, for a big company sitting behind a desk. And it's, it's a really, really good feeling for me to not only design the product, but actually physically be involved in making the product. So take us back and starting, because I know this was inspired by assisting your son, you and your wife, assisting your son in healing from some pretty big suffering, uh, gastrointestinal suffering. Uh, so take us way back and, and tell us the story, because I know uh, you received a diagnosis when he was two years old. That really changed everything. Yeah. So when he was two years old, we knew that there was something wrong. He was didn't have speech. He had severe gastrointestinal problems, you know, just a lot of occupational therapy issues uh, that he was exhibiting. We did not, did not know what the word autism was, but we went to a pediatrician 
who diagnosed him right away as a kid on the spectrum. Uh, but luckily, this pediatrician also was a GI specialist and was able to sort of connect the dots and say that at that time, the statistics were about 80% of boys on the autism spectrum also had GI problems. And if you help solve the GI issues, then it relieves the body from some pressure and allows the body to heal um, and absorb more things like speech therapy and occupational therapy and social behavior. So he gave us um, the prescription basically to get on a low inflammation diet. And at that time, allergen-friendly diets wasn't really a, a word, like gluten-free wasn't even a well-known term. And so we basically just went and, and looked up what the common inflammation items were. And you know, it's a, it's a typical gluten, dairy, animal products, soy, excessively processed foods. And you know, essentially, it was a plant-based, uh, mostly raw diet that he was on. Uh, very, very difficult for him. And, uh, but that process, and it took a while, six months to a year of being on that process, really healed his gut. And what we were really surprised was, was as his gut was healing, stuff started working. Like he started absorbing the speech therapy a lot faster. Words started coming out, uh, just a lot of other things. He started sleeping better. And so this was like a domino effect that happened when his gut healed. And so we started that and that took about a year and a half for his gut to fully heal. But uh, he went through about four years of different therapies very aggressively, close to 30 hours a week, he was in different programs, even attending school at the age of three years old, uh, special needs schools. But I think by the time he was eight, he had started uh, developing more mainstream characteristics, like, you know, was able to uh, talk to his peers, was able to, you know, sit down, you know, also a lot of the kids on the spectrum have ADD, ADHD tendencies, so they very, have a very hard time concentrating. So he had ability to sit down and concentrate and take in. And I think by the time he was um, nine, he was very close to being neurotypical. And then we were asked um, when he was 10, whether we'd be comfortable with changing his diagnosis to without an IEP essentially. And, and we did that because we wanted the services to go to somebody, another child who needed it because services are pretty tight in terms of what's available. And you know now he's 15, neurotypical kid, probably most people can't tell the difference. And that process taught me a lot about the value of, or the relationship of food to healing. And that's what sort of led to the genesis of Amrita in 2012. Were you all plant-based? Where did plant-based come into this? Or have you always been plant-based? I yeah, so I've been plant-based for 20 years, but the but my son was plant-based. See, see, the thing is that um, kids on the spectrum tend to be very very repetitive in their behavior and and what they like, and so you have to be cautious when they, when you're trying to get them off certain products, you know, onto cleaner products. And so he like probably most kids were on what's called a brown diet, which is typically nuggets, fries, um, and things like that, and so we had to get him off that onto plant-based versions of it. But this is in 2008, nine, the versions of plant-based nuggets was really terrible. So he still had a little bit of um, meat in his diet. It was, it was still gluten-free, but then as the better options came up and as we started making, you know, versions with tofu or versions with tempeh, he, we'd move him towards it. What we found 
made the biggest difference was getting him off dairy. Dairy was just clogging him up really bad, especially his GI and gluten um, were the two big problems. And then getting him off any processed grains, like any of the stuff that, you know, the fast food stuff was really, really bad for him. So we were cooking a ton of vegetables, a ton of fruits. He was on a very high fruit diet through this process. And I think that really helped him because it gave him just a lot of fiber. It was delicious. It was just really high in vitamins and antioxidants. And I think that just gives him a lot of that, that good uh, nutrition that he's needing to, you know, at that time. And so vegetables were, was tough for a while with him. And, but we were able to work that through you know, other parts in his meal. It's reminding me of kind of the recipe that PJ and I say is like the recipe for success. And we can apply this to anything that we really want to achieve is a little bit every day or a long period of time that we really need to be patient with the process. And when I think about your little boy, like how much discomfort he must have been in. And when you're in discomfort or pain, which so many people are in pain, you're, you're not absorbing the, the teachings of the speech therapist because the discomfort in the body is going to be taking that the most of your attention. I can imagine it would be so hard for him. And we have a very good friend who's been on the show twice, Wendy Garofalo and her son. Um, I know that she orders, they have some Emerita bars. She, the second time we had her on the podcast, it was all about changing the diet and the power of that in healing the gut to heal the brain. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the, the difficult part about all of this is that it's not a magic pill, right? It takes a tremendous amount of patience it's not every allergen or every inflammation item works the same way in every kid. And autistic kids uh, are very routine oriented. So it's extremely difficult to get them to switch diets. So, you know, the amount of work that parents have to do, plus the amount of work that, they, that the kids have to do too, is, is just tremendous. Plus, there's been a lot of discrediting of the connection between diet and autism for a while in media. And I, I don't know, like the, the, all the sources of it, my, my feeling is some of it is driven by phar- pharma because they can't make money off nutrition um, or, or just, you know, plants and, and regular food. So there's been a lot of discrediting of, of actual hard evidence in the space. And I think as a parent who's dealing with autism, you've just got so many different things to deal with. So then you say, oh, well, the diet doesn't work. I'll just give the child whatever they want. And I'll work on speech and OT and other things. And so we, I see a lot of that. And that kind of sometimes it makes me sad because I think diet is, is kind of mostly free. Yeah, it's a lot of work. But what do you got to lose to try it? If we're not feeling good, yeah. we're not going to be able to absorb anything. I mean, let alone absorb any of the nutrients that we're trying to put in the body. We're not going to want to learn. We're not going to want to pay attention. Yep. Yeah. It takes incredible patience. Was there a time that you, do you remember any particular moment where it felt like too much, where yeah. you could really see why some parents are saying, you know what, just get the speech therapist in here because that's their job and I can't do this anymore. Yeah, for sure. So the, and I'll just give you one data point, like there are more families that go through divorce or autism than I think any other condition because the stress that it puts on, on a, on a marriage and on the family is just tremendous. But, but put that aside, I I think of the one incident that was just always stays in my mind is this situation where when the pediatrician 
diagnosed him. He said, listen, we need a view of what, how bad his GI is. So they, they gave him what's called a, a pill cam. It's a tiny pill um, that actually has a bunch of cameras in it and you put it in and he swallows it and it travels through his entire gut and it takes pictures every second. Okay. And, but the, but the thing is that he can't eat for, I think it's third, 24 to 36 hours. And then he, he needs to go in and get, uh, I think he was getting uh, endoscopy or colonoscopy, something like that, to basically get a visual check of, of how bad the problem was. The problem is that because he wasn't eating, he also wasn't drinking any water and he start, started getting a really high fever and they can't do the endoscopy when the child has fever. Um, so I still remember sitting in, in, the, in the room with the, with the doctor and he's saying, listen, I, I can't do this operation. He'll have to come back. And we just started bawling because we knew how difficult it was for this kid not to eat any food, to have fever. Um, and we basically uh, very quickly, you know, analyzed the situation and, and realized that it's just fluids that he was missing. So we put him on an IV drip. And as soon as he got some, some liquids into his body, his fever came down and they were able to perform the endoscopy. And, but it was it's just a, a chilling moment that still I remember vividly as to how difficult it was for him, who was crying, and for my wife and myself, we were just uh, also, you know, just in tremendous amount of, of uh, fear and just, just feeling like helplessness at that time. Like we, he hasn't eaten and he's already suffering and now he's suffering more and now you're telling me you can't do what we came here what to do. we created all right. this suffering for right so what did they find what did they find what were the findings of that test yeah so they found massive lesions throughout his entire gi system so the pill cam showed that and the endoscopy and, the, and i think it was just an endoscopy from the top down it showed that his his gi tract was 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 pretty raw and, and that was actually what what led them to say, listen, you know, he's, he, he's a severe GI kid. He will do really well with steroids. Or if you want to go, don't give him steroids at this stage because they can have pretty severe impacts, you know, at, at two years or three years old. Um, do, the, do the inflammation, uh, low inflammation diet process. So we walked away with a prescription for steroids and then, you know, the, this advice of how to be on a low inflammation diet. And we basically followed the low inflammation diet. Uh, and we're so glad we did because the steroids would have been the easy way out, you know, just to give him some of that. They, they didn't do a follow-up because he was feeling much better. Uh, so we assumed that his GI was healed by that point. And then that, like I said, it took about a whole year uh, by the time we went back for the follow-up. What, did you guys, was there a discussion that went on when you, when you, you've, got, you've got the pill, you've got the prescription in one hand and you've got this low inflammation diet in the other hand and you're sitting there maybe with your wife and just like discussing the options and figuring out, you know, which, which path do we take? We know this one is going to be more struggle and we're going to have to learn some things, but, you know, overall it might help him or you've got this, this prescription, this pass basically yeah. to just sort of fast track it. Yeah. So, so I was already on plant-based for a while before that. So I knew the value of food, right? So I, so I kind of had um, some insight into how food heals the body. And, and that was my, basically my discussion. And, and the doctor didn't have enough evidence um, at that time to, sh to be very conclusive that a low inflammation diet was going to work. So he was saying, listen, we're still working through this. You guys will be one of our early case studies if it works. And, um, but I would really, 
you know, and he, he was, and we're very lucky to, to have had him versus another doctor who, are, who would have not given us the inflammation route or the low inflammation route and would have just given us the steroids. And so we, we took the, the low inflammation option and we said, again, what do we got to lose? You know, we'll try it for a couple of months. If it doesn't work, we can always try out the steroids. Yeah, I think that's a brave choice because it's like you had instant relief in one hand, which I, I agree probably would have caused some repercussions that would have needed to be dealt with in the future. Or you take that what we would call like the goat path, right? So you've got the super highway that you can go down, Six know lanes. that like, you know, it's just going to be a smooth ride. Or you look up at that mountain and you start taking that first step and you're you're bushwhacking that trail you know knowing that it's going to be a bit of a journey so how does this experience with your son translate to you leaving your job and creating amrita yeah so this happened in 2007 ish 2008 i took a sabbatical um from ibm for well i went on uh uh, 20 hours a week of work. So basically um, just working part-time and really wanted to get myself immersed in the recovery for my son because I, I really felt that uh, one of the, 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 the key pieces of data that I'd read was that early intervention was critical uh, because the brains are incredibly pliable at an early age. And so the more maximum effort you put in, um, the, 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 the response or the return on that effort is, is pretty good when the, when it's, when the brain is very pliable. Uh, so I decided that it was important for me to really learn what was the, the process of recovery, um, and also just be involved in it. Because I think one of the, one of the things I had heard from other parents was that the children get very confused by all these multiple, uh, teachers coming into the house. And at that age, they're already dealing with social behavior anxieties uh, and so if the parents are not involved, it's, it's even more difficult for them. And so, so, that, so that was one big thing I did up front. And then as a result of doing that, we also started making, so, so he had a lot of occupational therapy problems, so basically sensory issues. And so working with dough, so whether it's Play-Doh or whether it's, it's kneading dough for pizza or anything like that is very, um, helps from a sensory perspective. And, and so one day, you know, we were doing a lot of this Play-Doh stuff and throwing the Play-Doh out. And we thought, well, how about if we make something that we can eat? And one of the things that I was really trying to get into him was uh, something that was very calorie dense because he wasn't eating a lot of different things. And so we started working with dates. Dates happen to be extremely calorie dense. And we just started adding in seeds and chia seeds and a sunflower seeds and all these kinds of different things that he was kind of excited about. Just It was basically like Play-Doh. Okay, and then we were starting to knead it and make it into a dough. And then we took cookie cutters and cut it up into shapes. And that was basically the genesis of Amrita bars, right? We basically, and then um, there was a farmer's market down the street from us. Uh, we knew that he needed social behavior therapy where he had a hard time talking to people and he needed to make eye contact. So I dragged him to the farmer's market and I was like basically forced him to talk to people. And we, it just so happened that Whole Foods buyer came by and kind of loved the interaction of him telling the story of the bars and, you know, asked uh, me like, oh, would you like to bring your product to the Whole Foods down the street? And that was it, you know, and that, and that happened in 2011, I think. 
And I had no idea what retail was. I had no idea about manufacturing. So I scurry down to the basement and then we, we get some Cuisinarts and some things together and we start making the product. And you know, for the first year we made it in our basement, shipped it over to Whole Foods and it sold really well. And in 2012, IBM was going through a massive layoff. So I raised my hand right, right away as soon as I found out about it because you know, I wanted to get out and this was like an easy way, like they were gonna pay me to leave. And so that was basically the way I left and I started going, doing Amrita full time. So that moment when Whole Foods says, hey, do you wanna be in Whole Foods? Were you, was it one of those moments where you said yes and in the back of your head going, how are we ever gonna do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so basically I said yes and then I went, ran home and basically started researching like how do you put food on whole food shelves, like food safety, you know, how do you make products at scale? Because honestly, we just made enough for the for the farmer's market. Like we were, you know, making a couple hundred bucks a weekend at the farmer's market, ordered packaging. I still remember, you know, going on my PowerPoint and making uh, you know low um, what is stickers for the for the bars. Um, we handmade stuff for the first year, pretty much everything. Wow. And what does Amrita mean? Where did the name come from? Yeah, it's a Sanskrit word. It means nectar. And I, uh, because we were making everything sweet, I really believe that, you know, food is, is joy, it's sweetness, it's, you know, all of that. So that, that's what Amrita means. I love it. So then in 2016, this guy over here comes into your life. And was BJ one of your first, like, full-time employees that you hired? Yeah. So, you know, um, <laughs> it's like when you run a small business, you can't afford people, like any, anybody good. And I still remember, like, like um, courting Beach for a while. And he, and he was like, you know, uh, anyway, he wasn't, wasn't that he was expensive. He was just normal. But, but as a small business owner, I was like, holy shit. So, and then he wanted to make the transition. I was, and so it was great. It was like perfect uh, timing. And, um, and you know, I, I, I think you guys were also trying to figure out what you're going to do with your next steps. So I, I got a lot of inspiration out of then learning your journey because I followed a similar journey, I think two years later when I went to London for a whole year. Yes. Um, and I, I want to talk about that. And I just love this uh, connection that you and BJ had because from BJ's standpoint, it allowed us to move into a space of risk because he was, you know, cutting his salary like in yep. half. Yep. He wasn't that great of an employee because he didn't <laughs> stay with you very long. <laughs> I remember I, we, it was such an amazing transition. Yeah, and I don't want to tell this story, BJ. So, um, but I do well, want to point out that BJ wasn't a great employee because he wasn't there that long, Arshad. That's not true, but because the, the, the like, you know, most of the time. People will say, oh, I got to leave because I got a better offer or something. When Beach came to me, he's like, I'm leaving because I got, I'm figuring out my life and this is what I want to do. I was like, holy shit, that's awesome. I want to do that too, but I can't do that. So, so definitely keep, keep me in the loop what you're doing. It was awesome. That was a challenging call to make to you because I, I, it was such a short time and I was in such an uncertain space. And you had gifted me the opportunity to leave a job, Arshad, that I could have stayed at for the rest of my, my life. Like I could have been in the corporate world, just like you probably could have been in the corporate world forever. But you gifted me that opportunity. And I'll, and I'll recall this because I share this story with people who are on the same path is, you know, I got that email one day, a promotional email from Imrita about their bars. And I, and I took the hit. I had this hit to email you 
or yeah. whoever the owner was of Emrita. And I sent the email and I'm like, if you're ever looking for web help, like, let me know. And I can't remember how quickly the response it was. It was quick. But you replied and was like, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. And that yeah. just, that gave me permission. It mm-hmm. really just unlocked the door to give me permission that it's okay not to stay in the same job or the comfort zone or that, that square box of, of safety for the rest of your life. Like you can step outside and there's other things out there. And so you yeah. gifted me that opportunity. And, and yeah, the discussions about the financial piece were, were interesting on my, on my side too, because, you know, I'm working with Jess on this discussion. Like I just want to go and work for something that I loved, mm-hmm. you know, some uh, one product, like a product, not you know, nine restaurants and an inn and, and things that I have done in my life uh, all through my life. And that was plant-based, which was really starting to like come up really strong. Like posting pictures of prime rib and, and seafood was, was, was not aligning, yeah. but yeah. a plant-based nutrition bar for an athlete or, you know, someone who wants to just fuel their body with something clean and nutritious and uh, minimal ingredients. Wow. Like sign me up. And yeah, so I just wanted to, to, to express how important that decision was. And then to have that phone call with you, again, it's my growth process in, in working with the uncomfortable situations of, of now I, I, you know, I was with you for four months, I want to say, and then we were selling our house and everything in it and hitting the road. And the first thing you did was like, how can I support you? And I remember we t- were taking these bars with us on the road and handing them out in Lake Placid at all the little mini tries and, mm-hmm. and getting the word out. So it was never about like, you know, oh, you owe me. Like this is this is something, you know, you, you committed to. It was more like embracing the opportunities on both sides. Like how can we help each other grow? Talking about this relationship that you and BJ had, and it was really – Fun to watch because I know it was, you know, a big moment for Beach of growth and really getting out of his comfort zone. And but also something that was happening was you two were developing this relationship that I've seen over the last uh, four years. That was 2016. The last four years has really you guys have just supported each other. I've heard you on calls together. And what I'd love to dive into is what you had touched upon it before about how you packed up and you went to London and how that was partially kind of inspired by the crazy feat that we did. So when did this come into effect? Yeah. So, so I, um, I'll start with when I started uh, Amrita, it was in 2012 and I just followed the traditional path that most food companies do, which is going to retail and start building out retail. Like I was telling you before, I had no idea about food. You know, I just kind of got into this because that Whole Foods buyer came by the farmer's market and pulled my product in. And then the ego set in and said, oh my God, you're on Whole Foods, so you need to sell, right? And so I didn't really know anything about the food industry before I got in. And I, and I didn't do enough research to know what is it that I wanted to do. I, just, I was just following the path that everybody else was doing, which is basically get into as many stores as you can, outsource the production to somebody else, like do marketing, do sales. And then I was growing really fast. The brand was doing well, but I was making no money. And about four years in, I'd burned a ton of my personal money into building the business up. And there was obviously a ton of ego tied into that process uh, because you know we were a big brand at that time, but really struggling with making money. And about, I think, three and a half years in, my wife finally sat me down and said, you know, you're doing something that you love, but you're absolutely 
just a mess at this. You, you obviously, you're struggling with it from, from the perspective of feeling good about what you're doing. And, and it just came down to I realized that most food companies are, are in, this, in this state where they're making no money. They're either burning investor money or, or they're hoping that they'll get an exit at some time by somebody. And so at, at that point, the direct-to-consumer channel was coming up. Shopify was coming up. And I remember having this discussion with UB. And you know, that's actually when we got you on board is to help with building the website because we didn't really have a website at that time uh, or a good one. And so going into the direct-to-consumer channel, going onto Amazon was the right move. But right around that same time, my wife had this opportunity to be in London for a year. And I was so burnt out by my current state that I said, okay, I'm going to take a year sabbatical. I'm going to put the company on 100% remote, and I'm going to see what comes out of it. I had no idea how this was all going to work out. And I didn't want to give up the company because I felt like I could leave it on autopilot for a year, and I could still manage it. So, and that's what I did. And it was probably the best experience I've ever had. The business actually did not go down. It was flat, which was absolutely the most amazing thing. I had one employee in the US, and uh, I just came back two times in the one year to run production. And uh, basically, I did everything else from Europe. And I think I traveled 10 countries. We did at least you know eight or nine week-long trips with the kids. And that really taught me this power of like focused work, you know, taking time to do extraordinary things outside of work. And the, the bottom will not fall out if you just sort of have faith in it. Oh, faith, faith is everything. Faith is everything. And that, that's what we're learning on a global scale right now. For those of yep. that, for those that are mm -hmm. biting on the bait, yep. we're learning uh, higher levels of faith and trust. Did you have moments though? Do you recall moments when you were out with your family maybe and you, you were thinking about business or you were with business and you were thinking about your family? And if you did, how did you pull back? Yeah, 100%. And I deal with this now constantly. Like, so, so I'm terrible at separating, of shutting my mind off from work. Like, and, it's, and, and it's something that I'm working on constantly. So when I was in Europe, one of the, the really nice things was the, just the time difference. So the mornings, nobody was awake in the US. So I really got special time in the morning. So I walked my kids to school. I got my workout in uh, till about noon is, is when I started my work. So I started, I basically worked into the night. And, and I think that that gave me a little bit of separation. But when I was traveling, I just didn't have a strong enough team pre-built in the US to hand off stuff to. So I was still checking emails and things like that. So I was able to do it and I wish I had just planned it a little bit better so I could enjoy myself a little bit more. What would you, what did you learn in, in the way of, what would you do differently? What did you learn from it? I would have brought on somebody full-time to manage the business, yep. And I would have basically planned the, the the work with them better where I was checking in maybe once every week, not every single day, and really just absorbing myself in the culture that I was in. So, you know, and, and London has a tremendous amount of offer. And I just really wish, like I wanted to, I've always wanted to work in a cafe. Right? I, I want to be a barista. And I, I really had that opportunity in London. There were so many cafes and I just could, just could not get myself to take the time to do that. And I, that was one regret. I feel like this is a this is kind of a thing where, where you there was a little bit of like one foot in and one foot yes, out kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like okay, you know what? It's a it's enough that I'm doing this. You know, yeah. like I'm going to London when the business is actually not 
you know, it's yep. not really producing that much. I'm already taking a big enough risk. Like I've got to, I've got to be, you know, smart in business. And yep. what happened was you kind of put a cap on your joy. hundred percent. And I'll tell you like when B, I remember, I remember this, we were walking to the end of the street and I told, I said to BJ, I said, BJ, there is a window that's opened. If we don't go through it, it is going to slam shut and we're not going to get it again. Like we got it. And that's when we were like, no plan B. And he quit a job that he was working for Xterra Wetsuits, which was like paying the rent, paying for groceries. It was yep. the scariest thing we ever did. It We got our butts kicked financially, but we're fine. Like we're yep. here, right? We're yep. surviving. And, you know, it took us to... We went into some debt and things like that, but it was, we stayed in gratitude and we stayed in that belief. And that is a really scary thing to do is to say, okay, universe, there's no plan B. Like I'm going all in. I'm going to invest in this full-time employee. Yeah. So if you, let's just play a little fantasy here. If you did hire that person and, you know, did like the no plan B or kind of take your fingers out, you know, to a, to a greater extent, what do you envision your time in London looking like? Do you think maybe you would have gotten that barista job? 100%, right. So, <laughs> so the, the, you know, Europe really loves food. And I think that there is just no better place than being in London, like walking around to all the cafes and the bakeries, you know, and just like, I was just loving that. And, and so, and I wish I spent six months being a barista, like actually like learning how to make every single coffee drink possible. And then six months working in a, like a Swedish cafe or something like learning things that I would just never find in the US. That's what I I would have loved to do. Like basically be an intern in two or three different companies. And yes, you know, probably I would have lost a lot of money because I would pay somebody else to run the business and all that. But honestly, that's my biggest regret, right? and, And so I learned from that lesson really hard and that's actually why i started produ- uh, doing the production and here is because i realized that I, I always wanted to be a maker like i want to physically make a product i don't want to hand it off to somebody else to do it and so i took the plunge right most people would say during these times be lean outsource you know let somebody else handle the risk uh, versus having all the risk and i feel like if you love doing what you're doing it'll work itself out i love it so you use that experience as a way, what I was going to ask you is like, did it strengthen your desire to, you know, to get your hands dirty? Right. And it sounds like not only did it strengthen your desire, but it took you to where you are now, which is renting this large space where you're bringing um, production in-house. 100%. Yeah. yeah, but but who are they? This is, this is what I always say, like, <laughs> who are they to say? And yeah. it's just their experience. They don't know Arshad in his particular you're creating you're creating your future in this very in this very instance and there's no future proof of exactly what path you're going to take there's similar situations of people and that's what we tend to focus on because it gives us certainty right to to gives us that comfort comfortability to move forward knowing something but it's it doesn't have a pulse it doesn't have a pulse of your heart of what you you just said like your desire like you learned something in London, you came back here and you went for it. And this is the very thing we talk about. You, you're you present and aware yep. of the things and opportunities that you missed and you learn from them. And the next time that opportunity shows itself, you do not delay, you act 100%. on it. Even if all the people, all they yeah. Yeah, <laughs> are yeah. saying, don't do it, this isn't a good time. 
they just don't know who you are. Does that strengthen your confidence and ability to pretty much do whatever your heart desires? Yeah, and you know, I think there's also another saying and that and there's data that proves this that when you meet somebody who's at their deathbed, you know, most of the time it's about what they didn't do, right? It's it's the regret that they talk about the most, right? And so when I experienced this 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 thing in London, I said, I don't want to ever have regret again, like especially for big things. I want to just just do it. And I'm lucky enough that I've had amazing experiences in my life, right? I've I've had great degrees. I've just I've, I'm lucky, you know. I mean, I came out of India, came to this country when I was 18 with two suitcases, thousand dollars in my pocket, and I've been able to do it, right? And so, part a big part of that is luck. A big part of that is hard work. But I th- I think a lot of that is also just got to do with you taking the chances on things that you love doing and just going for it. And so I figured, hey, let's just keep doing that. Going to work out fine. So somebody who's listening to this, we talk about this a lot about doing, finding what you love and doing more of it. Because mm-hmm. I don't think we're here to go through the motions and I certainly don't think right. we're here to be miserable. Yeah. Um, I believe wholeheartedly and in my bones and my cells that we are here to experience joy at high, high levels. How does someone begin to figure out what they love? The way I did this was constantly wrote it in a journal or even just reflected on what is it that makes me happy? Because I think most of the time, there's enough things that make us, that upset us, that make us sad, that make us unhappy with the situation. And some of this we can't change right away. It's just the flow of, of life. But there are things that, like for me, going out on a long bike ride makes me happy, right? So I know I need to do more of that, right? So, so that's one of those things. But also working with my hands, like actually seeing 10 ingredients come together in a product and that product making somebody happy or not happy, but giving them at least giving me feedback is important to me. And so when I was at IBM, I was working on these big, massive hardware projects where nobody gave me any feedback. Like I presented this million dollar proposal to the government. You know, they they agreed on it. They didn't agree on it. They signed it. But there was no happiness transaction happening there. Happiness transaction. That's good. Yeah. Right. I just left the process going, well, great. You know, I did well. I I wrote a nice report for my boss and maybe I got a raise, but internally I didn't feel happy. And I think that's really important for us all to do work that leaves us content and that serves, like makes the world a better place. So I think that makes the world a better place is also a really important component of what I want to do. I mean, I could certainly be an entrepreneur and making goods or things that don't leave the world a better place or don't contribute. And so that's why I'm focused on food, plant-based, uh, hiring people with development disability here, like just being socially responsible as, as a business. And I think these are things that we just have to do, you know, at least I have to do as I make a product because I feel like it's the right thing to do. You describe um, your company as having a triple bottom line. What does mm. that mean? So. It's, it's people, it's profit, and it's the planet. Those are the three things that we care about. Obviously, people meaning we want to hire people, what we call in inclusion, so people who are not being given work opportunities generally. So people with development disability have very high rates of unemployment, especially right now. So we work with organizations that bring in young adults, so typically 18 to 24-year-olds who have graduated high school, so they don't have all the support of high school, the colleges are not giving them the support and they're still not getting jobs. And so they bring them here, we give them vocational training, and then our 
goal is to actually start hiring some of these people to do some of the work here. So that's people. And we also hire uh, refugees. So we work with the Refugee Council of America to bring some of those people in. Typically people who are having a hard time getting jobs in America is people who we want to give an opportunity to. Then uh, the planet. So everything we do has to have some kind of a positive impact to the planet. So plant-based being one of them, you know, recycling paper. We were working with uh, energy, uh, like an electric supplier who's bringing in stuff from solar and wind power sources. And, and so just kind of caring about the environment as we go through our daily production process. And then profit is important to us, but giving some of the profit back is more important to us. So we donate 10% of our profits to causes, and we've been doing that for years, but our goal is to be a little bit more aggressive with that now. That's amazing. That's, um, that's an abundant mindset, right? Where everybody, everybody wins, where we begin to move in a way through our life that is for the benefit of all beings. Right. And when the ego looks at that mindset, it says, no, because the benefit of all beings leaves me out. But that's completely false because the benefit of all beings includes us. Absolutely. And I mean, I, th I think the thing that we all have to realize is that we live in a country where the opportunity is immense. Like for any, if you do, if you are smart and you put yourself to good work, there's enough business opportunity for most smart people. So then it's a question of if there's enough opportunity, why would you not give back some of that, right? Why would you just keep it to yourself? And most people who give back realize that it makes them feel better as a result of giving back versus keeping it to themselves. So... It's, it's just a design that just makes 100% sense. Not, you know, and even if I think about it selfishly, like just to make myself feel more content, it'll make sense for me to give back. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. Yeah, it just, it just makes sense. I think, I think in, the, in the realm of, of not doing it, it's the fear factor. It's, being, it's having fear and doubt that you'll never be in the situation again, that you need to hold on to everything or you're going to lose it. When it's actually the reverse, it's actually that that boomerang you put out. Like you throw out the boomerang, it's going to come back. So you put these things out. You just keep flooding, flooding. And, and we worked on this when we were working. Just keep putting stuff out. Build the team. Build build products. Because at that point, you didn't even have the bites. Um, now you have the bites and the fruit products. Like keep putting stuff out. See what sticks. And and you you're creating momentum. And you're not you're not pumping the brakes at all. Right. And, and I think there is a de definite amount of unknown that goes into this process, right? You didn't know who was going to pay your bills. You know, you just, there was this big unknown. And, and, and I think I'm going through that unknown now with the business. And you just have to have faith. You just have to put it out there. Just put great work into the process because it will work out fine. And what's the worst thing that will happen? I might have to eat rice and beans for a few more days. You know, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Rice and beans. It's the, yes, it is the, the meal for everyone who's ever taken a risk. Sure. Rice and beans. Thank God for rice and beans. So let's talk a little bit about the product line. So you started with the bars, but now you've got um, some expansion on the website offering some other things. So tell our listeners what you've got there for them. Yeah. So, so what we, when we interviewed people, we realized that you know, people have been eating our bars for a while. The flavors, people get tired of the same flavors over and over again. So we could not make new flavors because we were in this transition. So we started looking at what we call snacking opportunities throughout the day. So what we find is that people are snacking literally from when they wake up to when they go to sleep. 
but but they're snacking with different things, right? So bars can serve a really nice purpose for meal replacement when you're on the go or post-workout or something like that. But so can bites in some instances, but we also got into superfood pantry. And this pantry thing was completely because I was bored one day and I said, I've got all this great dried fruit that I buy for my, to make my bars. Why don't I sell this to people who, who want to use dried blueberries or dried strawberries to make their own overnight oats? And so we started selling it and, and people love it because the quality is really high. So we, we're doing a lot of that. We're buying really high quality dried fruits and selling it in one pound, two pound bags as pantry staples. And then we're moving now into, we're going to start making some seed butters, nut butters. We're going to be moving into kids bars. So it's basically sort of expanding the snacking opportunity throughout the day for whether you're an adult or, or kids or you're an athlete. You know, there's just so many different instances that snacks can be relevant through the day. I'm horrified to admit this because BJ certainly knew about it and I didn't, but I actually just got onto the pantry um, today wow. and I was like, what, what is all of this? And BJ's <laughs> like, oh yeah, he was, he, he's, you know, he put that up there and I was like, oh my gosh, why am I buying our dried cranberries for our granola or our dried blueberries from Amazon? So I ordered some mangoes today and some ginger today and um, yeah. some toasted Coke, some toasted coconut because you know, the world just needs more, more toasted coconut, coconut, <laughs> yes, coconut bacon and, yes. and things like that. But um, yeah, that is an amazing option for people who maybe they're like, well, I don't really want to eat bars. Well, you can go there and you can get, you've got all these amazing dried fruits and seeds and delicious things to, to snack on where we're getting great nutrients and we're supporting a, a, you know, a smaller business and not supporting something so huge. Yep. Uh, so I love the pantry. I'm glad to hear that it's going well. And so the expansion will be into some seed butters and things like that. What is the grand vision moving forward? Do you have any kind of pie in the sky that you'd be willing to share? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd love making just different types of snacks. And the, the one area that I'm still trying to figure out is how to bring global flavors in. So when I was in London, there were lots of European flavors that had never made it to this part of the world. And I really want to bring some of those in. Also, you know, my background growing up in India, I mean, there's amazing superfoods like ginger, turmeric, cardamom as a spice. So there's lots of these things that I just haven't figured out how to make it into perfect snack. So we're working on things like that. Plus, I have really bad dairy intolerance. And so I'm on this quest to figure out how to make different things with coconut milk or, you know, some other non-dairy alternative. And so I've been working on this, uh, you know, chai you know, that comes with coconut milk and comes with cane sugar already pre-built. If you're traveling, you're not having to pay 50 extra cents for the barista to give you, you know, a little bit of non-dairy milk. It, it's, it's pre-made. So there are these kinds of things that it's scratching my own itch. That's a lot of what I've been working on. Plus just the snacks that I mentioned to you guys, kid snacks and nut butters and seed butters. Mm. The stuff is good. I'll t I, I can attest to that. I have a question about your son now at 15 years old. And like you said, you know, presenting as neurotypical child. Does he know the story and that he was the catalyst? Is, does yeah. he understand all of that? He does. I, and he started understanding a lot about two years ago. And because he's heard me talk about it a few times. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I always felt a little bit odd talking about him around him. You know, I just, I, I kind of felt like a sellout in some ways, like so I'm trying to build this company 
on my son. And, you know, and so I sat down with him. I said, you know, this is your story. And incidentally, he doesn't remember all of it. But one of the things that I loved about what he told me was that he wanted to help more kids who were maybe not as fortunate as him. And, and he was able to identify those kids really well because he's, he still has some of those tendencies of being a little shy and all that. So I think in his future career, I think he's going to probably be working in this space just because he can relate to it really, really well. Yeah. And how are you involved with the autism community? I know that you do work with the community. What does that look like? Yeah. So in three phases, right? So we, we work with organizations that bring the young people to our office to pack boxes and basically vocational training. So that's, that's a, a big part of time and effort that I spend with them because I, ultimately I want to employ those people here uh, and maybe even some people from that program. The second one is to educate the community about the connection between food and autism. And that one is, is tough, but, I'm, but I'm, really, I'm really focused on getting as much data out there and as much case studies of other parents like myself having seen success and just putting that out there for people. And then I think the third one is just donating to Autism Speaks, all the different events, you know, product, time, that kind of stuff. What do you want our audience to take away from your story, sharing your story, the risks that you've taken, the frustrations that you've endured? What do you want them to take away as a message? Hmm. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a piece about my journey, and I, t and I tell a lot of people about this, is like, it, it, it doesn't matter at what stage in your career you're at. I'm, I'm 52, and I jumped when I was 45 from IBM, right? And, and I still feel like I have no retirement in sight at all, right? And, and I, I think I'm going to be working for the next 30 years, quite happily working because I, I love working. So it's really important to, if you're unhappy in what you're doing, to figure it out and to, to go do it because uh, you don't want to be regretting it. On your, on your deathbed. So, that, so that, that's one big component. And I think the other piece is just this connection between food and feeling well. And I think um, you guys do quite a bit of that, talking about that on your show. Obviously, plant-based is a big part of that, but there's just so many other pieces, right? Sleep, rest, meditation, stress, management. I mean, there's just all those components. And there's so much data out there now that wasn't there 10 years ago on, on how to just live a better life. And so people need to just listen and, and take action. You, you mentioned meditation quickly. So what is your, currently, what is your, because we've talked about this, but what is your yeah. current, uh, what's your current mindfulness practice look like? Yeah, so I, I do a little, about 10 minutes when I wake up, right? I, I find like I, I just got to get it in. Otherwise it's hard. And then I do another 10 minutes before I go to bed. And that one, I find I just started adding it last week where it was basically I had this gratitude journal that I just wasn't using. And I found like whenever I used it, I felt great. Like I slept really well when I did my gratitude journal. And so I do, that's it. So I do kind of two pieces of meditation right around 10 minutes each. And the nighttime is a little bit longer because I'm writing stuff down. And isn't it amazing to just wash, kind of wash the day away with that? Yeah. I mean, it's 10 minutes. And Beej and I have, um, you know, this whole coronavirus and all of that has really called us to, we know, like, we need to be meditating more. Those who are meditating, we need to be meditating more, okay? We need to be attuning to the light because this cloud is very dense and it's 
fed by fear and doubt. Yeah. And so we need, we're, it's calling us to more, which I love, like, okay, yeah. like I'm, I'll, yeah, like I'm ready for more, let's do it. And so we've been adding a second meditation, but not, not every single night. And when we do do it though, it's like, oh my ah, gosh, it's yeah. just amazing. But I love it. And it can be 10 minutes. 10 minutes is, 10 minutes is profound at the end of a day. When you think about what we, yeah. especially with this audience of athletes, like we're not, we're, we don't have a lot of time where we're just staring at the wall, you know, yep. unless we just get back from a long workout and we can't move. We're yep. doing a lot. Like this community is doing a lot. And so to take that time to do nothing yep. is profound, profound. And it will have a, I want to encourage everybody who's listening to this. It is having a profound effect at the rate at which we are moving through the current circumstances of our life. Hundred percent, yeah, and and I'm so glad to see meditation starting to take a, you know, more of a mainstream stage because I think it's it's first of all it's free, secondly, you know, it's like you know, and in this age where everybody's trying to watch their money and all that, this it's free, you know, just just do it, and everybody's got ten minutes at least in a day, and a lot of the apps and all the day, all the way to do it is also free, you know, enough videos and all that on on the internet to um, to learn how to do it. Yeah, there's no right or wrong way, and and 10 minutes is less than 1% of your day. Less than 1% <laughs> of your day. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is that people sometimes can't get the quantitative feedback from meditation fast enough, so sometimes they leave. But, and, and, and I was that way too. Like, I, I, I was just like, oh, I, my heart rate's not going down. I have a Fitbit on, and like, it's still, you know, beating at 70 beats a minute. This thing is not working. But the more you do it, the more you realize that you just feel better. Like overall, you're, you're not as reactive. I'm a very reactive person, especially with three young kids and all that. And I think meditation just makes me take a pause, like before I say something back. And Yeah. And it's that when we talk about, you know, doing what we love and taking risk, which if you're going to do what you love, you're going to be taking a risk. Even if it's your, even if it's your hobby and you have a full-time job that's, you know, paying the bills, if you're doing what you love, you're taking a risk because you're putting yourself out into the world and you're sharing your gifts, right? So that's super scary. And when we meditate and when we get still, when we move into that calmness, we're connecting in with our essence and yeah. our essence is complete and it's whole and it's not sick and it's not scared and it's not lackful. And so if people are looking for fuel to be able to take these risks and do what they love, meditation is going to, as a byproduct of the practice, going to connect ourselves with that part of us that's always ready to take risk because risk is no big deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, this is amazing. You had a question about our podcast for... Oh, Chuck. yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know you're an avid listener. Now, well, now that I know you've got an hour each way... Two hours. Um, commutes two, two hours. Two hours each way? No, one hour each yeah, way. One hour each way. So what... I'm sure you've heard tons of conversations. What can you pinpoint as something you've pulled away from maybe something we've discussed or, or a podcast guest has maybe brought some or shine some light on for you? Like what, what's one thing you could take away from what you've listened to? Yeah, I think a lot of your podcasts, I mean, you have a ton of athletes on your podcast and they talk about, you know, training and I've been listening to a lot of your 100K, you know, discussions about the racing and all that. And I think the amazing thing that I take away from most of these, these discussions is that the, the limit is, it's limitless, right? And so it's like, uh, you know, doing a 100 mile race, 
is, is crazy for anybody to think about it. And, and I know you've got a past of training and all that to get there, but still, it's, you're, you're taking some ma massive chances and just putting it out there in the universe and doing it, right? And I think that's one of the things that I've sort of taken away is just, just put, put the goal out there and just work. You know, just put in the work every single day just for the sake of putting in the work, right? Like, don't, mm -hmm. don't count. Like, don't just, because I have a big habit coming from the background of being in consulting and strategy to count, to, to just look for data, to, to validate why I'm doing things. And, and I think one of the things that you guys have taught me and, and I've been teaching myself through meditation is it's okay not to know the answers. It's okay to, to not have feedback coming in, but just to be able to just, just put the work in. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, do well, the work for yeah. the sake of the work and not yeah. for the fruits. And something that BJ says all the time, because it doesn't matter for me if I'm, when I signed up for my first 50K, that felt the same as when I signed up for my first 50 mile. And the first 50 mile felt the same as the first 100K. Like, oh, this is big. You know, it's the unknown. And something that BJ says all the time is like, can you just be willing to have an experience? Do the work. Yeah. yeah. It's really difficult, you know, to just leave it up to the joy of the experience because I think we're all so wired to mm -hmm. go, you know, I want to have, what's my time like, you know? I mean, I really struggle with going out on a bike without any instruments. It drives me crazy. But when I do that ride without instruments, I feel great because... There's no data to tell me either way. It's just my feeling at the end of the day. Like, how did my legs feel, you know? Right. There's no data to say, hey, listen, you shouldn't feel great because you were actually really slow. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. hey, you know, I, the, the data that I use is how tired did I get? Like, like how empty is my tank? And, you know, what did I leave out there? And, and how well did I ride and all that? I love it. Amazing. What a beautiful conversation. It flew by and we're so grateful. Thank you so much. Uh, any final words, Beach? Yeah, I just, I just want to thank you again for just the opportunity to, to take the plunge and afford me that opportunity to, to be where we are right now, four years later, being able to have this conversation with you, which has been in the queue for so long, hoping that we could be face to face. But you know, this, what's going on right now is gifting us this, this conversation virtually. So we're just so thankful that you're in our lives and you've just been an inspiration for me and, um, and for everybody out there. Yeah. But, and the same way, you know, vice versa, because I think you've been a big inspiration for me to do things that I'm still trying to figure out how to do, like move, make the move to California at some stage, right. And to, to pack my car and go away for, for a while. So, you know, keep, keep doing the amazing thing that you guys do. Oh, thank you. And if you need anybody to help you throw some stuff out, then I will be there. In I love to throw things out. You know what? I, I'll make sure that I get you guys all my test products that I'm making because there'll be a lot of those coming up. Oh, that awesome. sounds wonderful. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And uh, we, I can't wait to launch this into the world. Thank you. Take care, guys. Oh.